Welcome back to the Breastfeeding Talk podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kinster, and I'm so excited for today's episode. If you can't tell, I've brought on the amazing Dr. Liz Turner. She is a dentist out of Denver, Colorado. Not only does she treat ties in her practice, lip ties, tongue ties, buckle ties, but she actually takes a whole airway-centered approach, and you're going to find more out about that in this episode and the airway connection to ties and breastfeeding. So make sure you stay tuned, and if you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes so you don't miss more amazing, life-changing episodes like this one. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I have Dr. Liz Turner here. She is an incredible dentist. She practices out of Denver, Colorado here in the US. And I'm super excited to have her on the podcast because I actually connected with her via Instagram, which is always fun, and learned that she has so much knowledge, not just about tongue and lip ties necessarily, but also the airway. And on this episode, we're going to get into why that's important when it comes to breastfeeding. So welcome, Dr. Liz. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you. You have so much amazing, incredible knowledge and experience to share with our audience. And I definitely want to dive into that, but I would actually love to hear, and I know our listeners would love to hear this as well. How did you get into what you're doing now? Uh, maybe even just how you became a dentist, if that was always a goal, but I'd love to hear more about your background. Sure. I'm uh, from the East Coast and I went to dental school at Tufts and I feel like I got an incredible education there. but one thing that isn't taught is and emphasized is airway and the functional component of the tongue. And I think, and I hope that education will be changing, but 10 years ago when I graduated, I didn't know anything about this. So my experience started with the birth of my son two years ago. And I was, I had a fairly simple natural birth I did have some intervention with medication towards the end of a like 30 something hour labor. So the grand scheme of things, not as long as other people's. So overall, I'd say my birth was fairly easy and my son came and he didn't have any problem latching, but he just didn't seem as happy as he could be. He was kind of gassy, kind of fussy, kind of fell asleep during feedings. And I was concerned. And it was a nurse on day two who, she said, oh, he, he seems to have a mild tongue tie and a mild lip tie. And everybody else said it was okay. Pediatrician said it was okay. Lactation said it was okay. And so from there, I was like, okay, I guess everything's okay. But I was fortunate enough being in the dental space that I have some incredible pediatric dentist friends who are a little more forward thinking. And they were able to say, you need to have that evaluated and you likely will need to have it treated. And after I had him treated, he instantly changed. He started sleeping better. 
gassiness, fussiness, uh, clicking, and also the um, the kind of falling asleep at the at the breast that he was having all went down. Well, three days after he had his release, my father-in-law had a fatal heart attack, luckily in the doorway of the emergency room. He threw a blood clot from uh, AFib, and he had had years of untreated sleep apnea. He had a stutter for, and has a stutter for his entire life, and that affected him a lot growing up. And he was lucky enough to survive after coding twice, fractured ribs, collapsed lungs, six days in a medically induced coma. And what does that do to a 70-something-year-old's body? If we had only looked at things earlier, could we have prevented this problem? And so that's kind of where my concern over the airway and the relation to the tongue came from. And I just think that if we can address these little ones when they need to be addressed, whether it's an IBCLC catching them or a dentist or a pediatrician or a speech and language, that maybe we can prevent these problems for adults down the line. I love your story and thank you so much for sharing. And for our listeners who might need to play a little bit of, of catch up if they haven't been following along with either, either of us on social media, you know, what we're going to get into on this podcast, we're going to nerd out a little bit here because um, there's so much, you know, clinical evidence and science behind this, but, you know, an untreated tongue tie at its core is really an airway issue. And when you can't breathe well, you can't eat well, and you can't do a lot of other things in your life well. And there, you know, um, that can absolutely lead to sleep apnea and sleep apnea leads to those kinds of cardiac issues like your father had. Uh, and it's very scary. We, we know from studies, you know, having sleep apnea, that can take another 10 years off your lifespan. So this is not a light issue. And what I don't want though, is for parents to hear this and freak out with their outlet monitors or whatever and go, oh, is my baby breathing? Okay. Like we don't need paranoia no, here. Definitely but, not. <laughs> but what we're saying is, is that, you know, that, that disrupted function, you know, beginning at, at early life, it doesn't get better on its own. It doesn't go away on its own. And it causes, you know, a lot of huge problems later on. And you mentioned speech in particular. So I would love to hear from your perspective, maybe what are some of the things that you see when we don't uh, get those ties examined and treated early on? Maybe some of those complications that, what are people coming to you for in terms of, you know, dental work and things that need to be done that, you know, we could have maybe avoided had they gotten some earlier intervention. Sure. So from a children's perspective, so uh, as we go through the life phases, from a children's perspective, there's a lot of behavioral issues that children are medicated for these days. One in five children is medicated for ADD or ADHD. And I'm not saying all ADD or all ADHD is a sleep disorder, but we are one of the few countries that doesn't test for the quality and the quantity of sleep before we medicate a child. Well, with those medications we put them on come side effects, which lead to more medications. And if we could just test to see if you know, children are getting the quality of sleep before we medicate them, I would think that that's a less interventional way of, uh, and a less complex way of, of treating somebody. So Behavioral issues, dental crowding, we see a lot of open mouth posture and open mouth breathing, forward head posture, 
uh, we see a lot of bags under the eyes. And why is the, I just wanted to interrupt really quick. Why is the open mouth breathing a problem? So nasal breathing is essential to health. We get more oxygen, useful oxygen into our bloodstream if we're breathing through our nose because there's a component that's released by our paranasal sinuses called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is kind of the key for your body to be able to utilize that oxygen. So if you if you're not breathing through your nose, what's going to happen is the what would be warm, filtered, humidified air as it passes through your nasal passages as it's meant to is going to go through your mouth. So we see a lot of inflamed tonsils and and inflamed gum tissues, especially in around the front teeth. So if you notice, like your child when you're brushing their teeth, that the front, uh, their front teeth, when you're brushing them, are per- the gums around them are particularly red, or maybe they do some bleeding, or the child is really doesn't want you to brush because maybe it hurts. That could be because they're breathing through their mouth, and instead of the nose doing the filtering, that it should be the the gum tissues and the tonsils are are doing that. And you know, I have a lot of parents come and say when I point out the tonsils and say, oh, those tonsils, they look like they could be a bit enlarged. They'll say, oh, I had my tonsils out too. And so this is kind of a, a, it, a lot of it's an ear, nose and throat issue and an ENT issue. And that's where we have to collaborate a lot as to when is the safe, safest time to address these? How do we address them? Sometimes it does involve a surgery and sometimes it involves just working with the child to get them to breathe through their nose more efficiently. Mm, yeah, no, that's really important that you said that. And, um, you know, you mentioned how nitric oxide is created in the nose through nasal breathing. And one of the things I see with breastfeeding moms is often they don't realize that they might have a, a breathing issue from an underlying tongue tire or something else. And uh, they might experience something called vasospasm. So it's a, mm-hmm. it's a pain in their breast. And when we do something to create more nitric oxide in their body, which is a vasodilator, that vasospasm goes away. And so a Mm -hmm. lot of the times it's not just needing to apply heat packs or all these things you might want to Google about vitamins and things you can take for vasospasm if you're still mouth breathing. And that could be at night. Maybe you don't really do it during the day. Um, You're not going to get that correct circulation like you're saying. So this is something that not just affects babies and children, but even breastfeeding moms directly. So it's such an important point. Yeah, it's yeah and uh, we ha- we do see uh, there's a relationship to erectile dysfunction and sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing for the same reason that nitric oxide is a vasodilator. So it doesn't yes. just affect babies and moms, it affects men too. Every man is like now going to go get a sleep study done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As they should. It's true. It's true though. I mean, we're not oh. lying. The science is there. And what I love is that you're not just a pediatric dentist, you're a general dentist. So you see people across the lifespan. So you have, bring this really valuable perspective in. And I would actually love for you to chat about, you know, um, a little more about, uh, you know, when, when we do treat the ties and, and what happens when it's corrected. And if you could talk a bit about your experience with that. Sure. So one thing that we're, I mean, we want a team approach because what I do is I allow the tongue to physically and the lip to physically be able to accomplish the goals that it needs to, which is removing milk from the breast, but also resting in the correct position, which is on the roof of the mouth. And without the team approach to get the function down, then we may not see full success in the release, even if it's a full release, even if parents do the aftercare 
the studies all show that yes, we do get improvement, but it, it really is working with functional providers or body workers to make sure that everything is going as it needs to and we can accomplish those goals. So, you know, when I talk about to parents, the aftercare, it's, it's always easier to treat a baby when they're kind of fresh out of the womb because you have a lot, number one, more time to work with that child in doing tummy time and in doing the aftercare exercises, the gentle stretches, and you can associate those with all different things, whether it be feedings, whether it be tummy time, instead of having to have um, I actually had to, I had my toddler re-released because with my father-in-law's experience, I did not do the aftercare as I should have, as I did not understand the importance of it. I can tell you that it's a whole lot more challenging to do aftercare on a one and a half year old who does not want to be uh, anything in his mouth besides his own toothbrush when he's brushing his own teeth. So, you know, when we're looking at it from a professional perspective and ease for the parents and also what's um, hopefully easier for the baby to figure out the feeding patterns when it's earlier. And I'm sure you can attest to that, uh, that, that it's easier for the baby to kind of convert back to the proper pattern than uh, waiting until they're a little bit older. Then we don't get the tongue thrust and the swallow and things like that develop no. as should. You've really hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. It, the earlier we get it treated, the better. And, and I think it's a question you probably get asked a lot is like, when's the best time? Do I need to wait until the baby's X, Y, Z old? And of course, you know, there might be some situations where you don't want to treat right away. And those are, you know, decided by that provider who's going to do the procedure like yourself. Um, and sometimes I might see something where I'm like, uh, you know, I don't know, like this baby has a heart condition. Maybe that's why things aren't going mm -hmm. well. Let's do a wait and see. I'll do my thing if it doesn't get better than we know, you know, so. 100% or like women who've had traumatic births and they have, the baby has a torticollis or they have a preference to lay to one side. Well, it may be better to make sure that the baby's feeling comfortable in its own skin and everything is well aligned. I mean, birth is a traumatic thing for, for a baby. It's natural, but it's, it's a challenge. So yeah, it, those are all, uh, times it maybe would wait to do uh, a release. So true. So true. And you mentioned the body work and I, you know, I'll definitely have, um, you know, I'll bring a body worker on here to, to go into that topic specifically. But um, like you just mentioned, torticollis yesterday, I had a client and this, this baby, um, you know, the mom had been told, you know, yes, there's a tongue in the tie. No, there's not. And so she's like, I don't know what to mm -hmm. think anymore. Can someone else just come in and tell us? And, um, I mean, I saw it when the baby was crying, so it was very, it was there, right. It was, it was obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, but I said, Hey, uh, your baby though. And, and they talked about it right at the beginning of the appointment. They're like, we can't get him to turn his head to the right. He cries. He seems uncomfortable just laying down. And I was like, well, look like, yeah, I can see how the ties are, are playing into things and it not, you know, breastfeeding isn't going well, despite everything that we're doing. But if you decide to go get that release while well, he's that asymmetrical, one, maybe the release itself isn't going to be, um, you know, it, like the provider would do a great job, but there's more tension on one side than the other. So trying to do mm -hmm. a surgical release on some tissue it may not turn out symmetrical once that torticollis corrects. Now you're going to be like, oh, that looks a little skew under there. Or 
they're going to heal with more tightness on one side than the other. And so if the tongue, if one half of the tongue moves great and the other doesn't, well, we, we kind of did a procedure, but we didn't do all the other things that we should be doing. And exactly. I think that's a great example because we need the functionalist as much as we need the proceduralist, which is you. And, um, that team approach is, is so, so needed. Like I always tell people, it's like, I feel like I'm like a salesperson for all the other providers because I'm like, it's not just me. I promise. Like you, you will need more visits with me if you do not get the help of these other people. And it sounds like you found the same in your practice. And that's the thing about the frenum. Like we can all look under our tongue and we all have a band of tissue or some people call it a string or some people call it a cord. I think it's a lot more dynamic than that, but we can all look under our tongue and, and recognize that there's some type of a tether. Well, is it a tether that allows for proper mobility or is it a tether that's interfering with function? So not everybody needs to look under the, their own tongue or their baby's tongue or their child's tongue and say, oh my goodness, they have a tongue tie. You need to look at the symptoms. You could have a child who is speaking properly, eating properly, never had a problem breastfeeding, and yes, they have some type of a tether that you can see, but that doesn't mean that it needs to be released. And that's the same thing with babies too. And so by working with, as a team, we can make sure that we're not putting babies under procedures that they, they don't necessarily need. And like you said, it might be as, uh, as a cardiac condition or something that's interfering with feeding, or it might've been the torticollis that's interfering with feeding. So there's a, a lot of different players. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I wanted to go back to a point where I think I might've cut you off a little too soon, but you were diving into breathing and sleep and, and those sorts of things. And you had mentioned how, like, um, you know, that your son was falling asleep at the breast, which I think was, was different from what you meant by sleep overall. But I would love to hear more about the connection between sleep and tongue tie, as you were mentioning. Sure. So I went a, a bit into what happens for children and some of the common things that we screen for. Uh, also, bedwetting is another one. But when it starts to come to adults, I mean, a lot of adults are told that as you get older, you don't need as much sleep. Oh, I have to get up to the bathroom to, uh, to go to the bathroom. And that's normal because I'm just very hydrated. Well, a lot, these things are normal that, that clenching is related to stress that, uh, TMJ pain, it's just something you have to live with. Well, a lot of the manifestations of untreated tongue ties that can lead to airway issues are TMJ pain, especially in women. We have less testosterone than men. So we experience pain uh, differently than men. Not that we don't have a higher pain tolerance, but the way we experience pain is different. So uh, you, TMJ pain, clenching and grinding, muscle tension in your face, in your back. Uh, we see a lot of, like I said, people waking up in the middle of the night to use the restroom uh, or not dreaming at all. A lot of the physical things that we're looking for is the there are these little bony growths that can form on the jaw. They're called tori, and people actually go to the emergency room thinking, I have a tumor. Well, really what that is, is you're able to clench four times harder than you're able to chew. So think of chewing an almond, multiply that by four. That's how much your body is clenching in the night or grinding in the night. And your body's reacting by forming bone so that it doesn't break. And our bodies don't wake us up uh, from a complete sleep, but they take us out of the deeper phases of sleep, the really restorative phases of sleep. 
So like when I have patients come and say, I don't feel rested after eight hours of sleep. I've just always been a light sleeper. I have insomnia. I wake up at 4 a.m. I can't go back to sleep. Those are all major, major red flags that something's going on in, in that sleep cycle that has to do with lack of oxygen. Mm, yeah, no, that's incredible. And, and I've seen that too. And especially, you know, I think um, there's this idea too with, with being a new parent that, you know, well, we expect to be sleep deprived and things like that, or that pregnancy that you're not going to sleep well. Um, but there's, there's definitely people that go through those times in their life that, that don't seem to lack energy or, or still sleep quite well, despite being woken up frequently, they can fall back asleep very easily and things mm-hmm. like that. And it doesn't mean like something's wrong with you. Like, oh, I just, I'm, I just have insomnia or whatever. Like maybe that's not actually a true characteristic of you. It's due to a physical issue that's disrupting your sleep. And Mm -hmm. it's so important that we really do listen to our bodies. Our bodies are trying to tell us things and we're over here like, well, you know, my jaw hurts. So uh, whatever, like it's just expected or I'm older. So I'm going to get up and go pee two times Mm -hmm. at night. And, and it's just kind of culturally accepted, right? Even in movies, we might see that or, or a commercial of, you know, some pharmaceutical for overactive bladder or something, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're normalizing. I'm on a med. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but, but there is an underlying cause. And, um, I think what I, I know a lot of listeners would love to hear. And one of the things that's just always fascinated me about learning more about this topic and working in this field is the tongue and how important our tongues are. And I'm sure you can probably do uh, maybe even a better job than me of explaining, you know, how the tongue is supposed to function. um, Because that's a piece that just, we're not taught, right? We're not, we don't go to elementary school and learn that. I mean, we know there's a tongue in the mouth, but that's basically it. Um, And Mm -hmm. I don't know, you went to Tufts and I know they have a great program there, but I think a lot of dentists maybe don't even learn that much about the actual tongue function. So I'd love for you to describe more of that for us. My memory of learning about the tongue was learning where the taste buds were and what the different names of them were. I don't (laughs) remember learning about the actual function of the tongue and how complex it is. It's, It's a muscle. And so when I talk about tongue tie and airway, it does, if you have an airway issue, or if you have sleep apnea, it doesn't mean that you have a tongue tie. And if you have a tongue tie, it doesn't mean that you have an airway issue, but the two do go hand in hand. And the reason is if the tongue cannot elevate fully to the roof of the mouth, up to the palate, what happens is the arch, the top arch, the maxilla is going to develop very narrowly. And what we get is elongation of the face. We get a narrow, narrow arch. Sometimes people call that in an overbite, like the top teeth stick out over the bottom teeth. So we can get an appearance like that. But what's happening is the roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. So if that roof of the mouth is really high up because the tongue hasn't been able to push everything out and flatten it, then you're going to get constriction in the nasal passageway. And that can also affect the airway in, in the back of the mouth as well, because the tongue it's kind of tied down to the hyoid bone, which is the bone kind of where the, the Adam's apple sits. And, and that compression in the back of the airway, it's, it's all muscle and tissue. So we can get restriction back there. 
and people are different. Some people have a nasal restriction, some people have an oral restriction, some people have both. But ultimately, the tongue tie is a major player in creating uh, or not creating the proper airway space. And when we think about cranial development and, and skull development, our maxillary bone and our jaw bones are 75% developed by the time we're four years old, which is why the emphasis on breastfeeding is so essential from a nutrition standpoint, but also from a developmental skeletal point. And, you know, the, the skull, it's, it's, it's got a lot of important things up there, nerves, blood vessels, your brain, your eyes, and all of that is meant to develop a certain way. And if it's not allowed to do so, well, we can get things like astigmatism in your eyes and need glasses, things like that. So. Oh my gosh. I was literally just going to mention astigmatism. I was yeah, going to nerd out wild. and be like, uh-huh. I learned this from, you probably know him. Dr. Lopez is an osteopath in Colorado. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I'd love to bring him on the show just because I oh read gosh, an article. Be wonderful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, you have to tell him so we can get him on. <laughs> yeah. But I, I reached out to him because he wrote this incredible article about that craniofacial development, like you mentioned, yeah. and it impacting, you know, the, the orbits that that's kind of the, the upper part of the mid face and that can cause astigmatism. And I went to my eye doctor who is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think I've mentioned him on the podcast before. And I was like, Hey, I read this article from this, you know, osteopath. And it said this, and he was like, you know, I, uh, have to be honest, it's never been discussed in like, uh-huh. you know, my school or anything, but he's like, that absolutely makes sense to me. He's like, that is mm-hmm. yeah, your eyeball is squished. So that's astigmatism. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow. Thank And I was like, so do you think that everybody with astigmatism has a high palate? He's like, I might just start checking. <laughs> and that's a thing. Like when are ophthalmologists ever taught that? Well, they're and, not taught you know, that. And this is somebody who like lectures out of school. Yeah. yeah. And he's uh-huh. like, I'm at a school and I, that's not talked about. So yeah. I mean, and whether, whether that's something that they want to implement in their education or not, I do think it's important for other providers to recognize that the body is it's one piece, but it's so multifactorial. And we can't, you can't just separate the pieces of the body into certain modalities like we have without recognizing that they're all related. I mean, it's like, okay, we'll go see your ENT, go see your neurologist, go see your nephrologist. And, but I mean, I talk to nephrologists, I have some nephrologists in treatment and they're more forward thinking with this airway because they look at the blood gases and they see high uh, levels of calcium bicarbonate, which is a a buildup in your body because your body's not able to to rid the system. And so it's it's really interesting how the airway kind of plays into every single modality of of provider. Um, And, you know, the sinus, like we were talking about the orbits, the the sinuses, if you have constant sinus problems or post-nasal drip, or you had to have your tonsils and adenutes removed, that all relates to to your airway and how well you can function. Yes, that's such an excellent point. And like you said, you know, the body isn't isolated into these pieces. You know, in the beginning, we talked about the heart issues. You know, this is something mm-hmm. where we need everybody involved. We need cardiologists involved. We need eye doctors involved. Mm-hmm. We need dentists involved. We need lactation consultants involved. We need speech language pathologists in the, in the massive list, right? We could just go mm-hmm. on and on. Primary care people 
um, you know, even urgent cares sometimes, right? So mm-hmm. we all really need everybody to know this information, which is why I'm so glad we're doing this episode. And, you know, you mentioned something about breastfeeding and that cranial facial development and how, you know, certain things are, are mostly developed by age four. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about what I do is because when breastfeeding is dysfunctional, so a baby that has a shallow latch, for instance, and you know they're just kind of on the nipple, or they don't, they don't have what's what I would say is functional breastfeeding. So they are breastfeeding, but it's not functional. It's not optimal. So we're just getting by. Maybe they're doing some compensations, other things that itself actually disrupts their genetic programming for their craniofacial development. So they're they're supposed to have these broad dental arches, like you're describing, uh, they're supposed to have an upper and lower jaw that is, you know, equally forward, not one over the other necessarily. Um, and breastfeeding can create that, but breastfeeding that's dysfunctional will create those elongated, elongated faces, those narrow arches, things of that nature. And that's what I, I want parents to understand that more than anything in a lot of ways is like, just because you can speak doesn't mean you don't have a speech problem, right? It doesn't have to be a full-on stutter to say that you might need some help with your speech function. It Just because you can breathe through your nose doesn't mean that that's happening optimally, right? You could have mm-hmm. some obstruction that's actually causing other problems. And I love that you're saying that because you're not saying, well, just because you have this means you have that, but it does warrant some investigation. Is that right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think that's the other thing to touch on is that, yes, we do have a genetic profile. We should have 32 teeth. 32 teeth is all of your teeth and your wisdom teeth. And, you know, who do you know that still has their wisdom teeth? I know very few people and I look at teeth all day. I have a few patients though who were able to keep their wisdom teeth. And a lot of them were raised in a different country where the diet was different. So it doesn't just come down to breastfeeding, but it comes down to what we go ahead and feed our children. And I, I don't like to call it baby led weaning because that there's very specific kind of protocol for baby led weaning. But the idea that we're feeding our children purees and packets and uh, processed foods is really interfering with the musculature of the jaw and the skull and the ability for it to allow all of those teeth to erupt the way that they should. So we see a lot of crowding. We see a lot of need for uh, extractions. It was very popular uh, over the last 60 years to actually remove extra teeth or braces because, oh, your jaw's just too small or your teeth are too big for your mouth. But we shouldn't have to do that if we're getting the type of nutrition and we have the functional uh, component when we're in our in our younger years. So I will say it's like impossible. My kid will not eat raw vegetables ever. And uh, maybe I just need to try harder. But <laughs> it, it, we all have to recognize that convenience is important. And when we're in our car, he's eating Cheerios. But I do try and make him eat things like chicken and dried mangoes and things like that. And, you know, a lot of the pediatricians too, they say, well, we it's a choking risk and and things like that. But the the tongue, if it's able to function properly, we shouldn't have uh, choking issues because the tongue should be able to lateralize and elevate and form the bolus of food that, that the body needs to swallow appropriately and not choke. 
Oh, you are so right on, you know, and, and for moms that I hear, you know, oh, am I just, do I have an oversupply or my letdowns too fast? And that's why my mm-hmm. baby's choking. And I'm like, nope, it's because their tongue isn't able to handle the flow of milk. There's nothing wrong with you. And mm-hmm. I think that's the message that so many moms are getting from healthcare providers that don't have the same functional understanding that we're describing is they're, they're basically assuming, oh, it's a me problem. And I'm like, no, actually you're doing just fine. Uh, your body's doing everything it's supposed to be doing, but your baby is struggling. And that doesn't mean they're broken or mm-hmm. not this Absolutely beautiful not. miracle that you brought into the world, yeah. but right. We can they're perfect. Yeah. And I <laughs> like, had a hard time with that. Screaming. Oh and, yeah. And that's, you know, I was at a class this past weekend uh, through the Breathe Institute and they are just fantastic, but they had an, a wonderful panel of IBCLCs like yourself. And there was something that I just really wasn't aware of. And that was, you know, your body is going to make as much milk as it, as it needs to for however many babies were born. And it, the hormonal changes that are happening in your body, you still have a really high level of hormones up to like what month two to four. And if that milk isn't being removed from the breast, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if that milk isn't being removed from the breast, but you still have that oversupply, your baby may be getting the milk because it's just drinking what's being thrown at it because your body's compensating because it thinks eight babies were born. Uh, but then as soon as that hormonal shift happens, you could dry up. And yes. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's where I hear, I cannot tell you how many times, you know, I'm just out and about, maybe I'm getting my hair done or, or something. Right. And someone's like, Oh, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a lactation consultant. And then everybody's got a story, right. Even if it's a guy, Oh yeah, my wife, you know, uh, but I will hear from so many women that are like, Oh yeah, I, I breastfed in the beginning, but my milk just dried up at three months. And I'm like, Hmm, that's funny that that coincided when we switched from that endocrine, which is the hormonal production of milk to the autocrine, which is how much milk and how efficiently is it removed from the breast decides how much milk is made. And sometimes it's a very sudden overnight shift where moms are like, I don't get it. A week ago, my baby was doing great. And now he comes to the breast, he's fussy. I can't pump anything. And you're like, yeah, well, that's because that oversupply was there, like you're describing. And, and often too, these babies who are struggling, um, you know, if they're having to work harder, you know, they, they get some lactic acid buildup, they're sore. Well, they go to the breast for comfort. They may be nursing more frequently than what is really normal or because their function is, is disturbed. They're swallowing air, their tummy Mm -hmm. is hurting and then sucking and swallowing soothes the tummy. And so they, they may have been great weight gainers in the beginning, or they may have nursed very frequently, but they weren't nursing efficiently. The latch wasn't right, or they couldn't generate enough suction in their mouth. And it's the same thing. Like if you use too low of a pump setting on your breast pump, you're not going to make as much milk eventually. And Mm -hmm. so if your, if your baby's mouth, we can't assume that their mouth is just working great. I love that people say, you know, babies' mouths are more efficient than your breast pump. Well, generally they're supposed to be, but they aren't always. And we can't always rely on that to be the indicator. And again, not to create paranoia for anyone who's listening, but if that's happening to you, you're in that like two to four month postpartum period. And you're like, what is happening? I had milk and it's gone. That's probably not so much a you issue unless you, you know, took a medication that could have impacted your milk supply, but um, it might be a baby issue that needs to be looked into. So I'm glad you brought that up. You, you also mentioned reflux or um, aerophasia induced reflux. And 
That's oh yeah. A, let's, let's get into the nitty gritty with oh, that. <laughs> well, it, it relates to adults too. And it's so, so common. And, and then we medicate babies for reflux and yes, maybe they do have reflux or they're allergic to lactose. And I know you go into that in some of your master classes and things like that uh, when it comes to food intolerances, but maybe you've done everything that you can in terms of like eliminating foods from your diet and your baby's still having reflux. Well, it, it may be a functional issue because it, especially if you're having to, if you are supplementing with bottles and I went back to work after six weeks with my, my first and now looking back, I'm like, oh boy, that, that was, that was tough, but it's also the reality of a lot of us. And so bottles are necessary, be it breast milk or formula, uh, but the baby doesn't have to do the work it needs to, and it doesn't have to have the same seal that it needs to. So we are swallowing air. And that can lead to reflux. And we see a lot of GI, not, I don't want to say food allergies, but possible food intolerances, inflammatory bowel syndrome. uh, Go along with the body, but he's young. Um, I'm going to have to have you repeat that because somehow we had a little glitch in the matrix. Yeah. It might've been me. Who knows? Uh, where did I lose you at the adults? Um, okay. You were saying, um, hold on. (laughs) Okay. You're talking about reflux. Oh, you just started to get into, um, like irritable bowels and that nature. So this, um, you know, this goes into the cardiac stuff too, but so when we start to think about adults, the sleep disordered breathing that can come from not recognizing these things earlier can lead to a lot of IBS, food intolerances. I think there's going to be a lot of research coming out down the line about the link between sleep disordered breathing and certain uh, food intolerances and, and things like that. But those inflammatory processes also work into cardiac disease, diabetes, even cancers are linked to sleep apnea. And um, I, I don't like using the term sleep apnea because everybody thinks, oh, 400 pound man, but there's so many different facets of sleep disordered breathing. And I like to couple them all into that. And you know, um, breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer, I believe have all been linked to, to sleep disordered breathing. Absolutely. And as one of my mentors and friends, Roger Price uh, calls it, he says it's not even sleep disordered breathing. He calls it breathing disordered sleep. And I like that. that. I really like that. I like that distinction. And and like you said um, about sleep where you're not getting into those um, when your sleep is disrupted and and you're, you you think you're a light sleeper or you're insomniac. And of course, moms who are waking up with babies, but um, your body doesn't get to go into that deep sleep where you have a restorative time where your body heals itself. So when you're talking about like gut issues and things, well, yeah, our gut heals itself every night when we're asleep, it's supposed to, but if you're not getting into that state, um, those specific brainwaves where that's allowed to happen in your body. And then on top of that, if you can't breathe well, you're getting raised cortisol levels. So those mm-hmm. stress hormones are in your blood. Those don't just decline because you woke up for the day. In fact, most of us are hitting the coffee pot first thing in the morning. So we're really jacking up those cortisol levels mm-hmm. to compensate for the lack of sleep we got the night before. And now you have this vicious cycle of just your whole body chemistry being thrown off. So 
you know, as many studies as we're seeing, like you said, linking these things to, to cancers and various things, uh, I'm sure more and more will come out because this, this stuff is going to get revealed because I feel like, you know, not just parents, but just individuals these days are taking health into their own hands. And they're like, I'm sorry, you know, genetics or whatever is like not an answer for me. There's a reason why. And if I could acquire this condition, you know, I could probably get rid of it too. And so we're seeing, you know, functional medicine and these things Mm -hmm. come out, which is absolutely incredible. But I feel like we're also just scratching the surface because as much as you and I know, we know a lot more than maybe a lot of people, but we're still like, whoa, there's so much more to learn. At least that's where I'm at. And that's one, I mean, one simple question you can ask yourself and ask your children is, do you dream at night or does your child have night terrors? Mm -hmm. Because there's, you know, there's a bunch of four stages of sleep really. And some of them are body restorative and some of them are mind restorative. And if you don't have one, then it's the puzzle can't be put together. And, And the link between the lack of REM sleep or dreaming mind restorative sleep and Alzheimer's is impossible to ignore without that phase of sleep where we're ridding our body of the buildup in our brain every single night uh, and also our ability to solidify our memories and form new memories and creative processes, then you know we can end up with mental components down the line too. So yeah, it's all linked. Absolutely. And, and, you know, mental health, uh, we're talking about that on a, on a, another podcast episode that I have, but you know, it's, it's so important and we have to take such good care of ourselves. And so if you're, if you're a breastfeeding mom and you're listening to this and going, well, yeah, you know, obviously I'm sleep deprived because I have a baby or maybe you have more than one child and, and it's a challenge, but let's also like just take a moment to have you check in with yourself and go, hmm, but was this an issue just because baby came along or have there been some patterns in my life before I became a mom that you might want to think about looking at? Because if you don't take good care of yourself, well, you know, you want to be around for your children, right? And we're not trying to go doom and gloom over here, but it's it's an important consideration. And this is why uh, it's really important to consider that some things in your baby that you might have been you know, you might've read or or been told or thought of, oh, well, you know, babies just spit up. Well, you know, how much of that reflux would we really consider to be normal? And is any of it normal? And, you know, what's, what's going on there? And like you said, it might not be an airway issue. Um, it could be something else entirely, but, um, you know, these, these sorts of things, you know, babies that, that don't sleep well, right? That they wake up every hour. Um, oftentimes I discover, uh, you know, some airway issues and, and now, and I think airway is getting attention because I, I saw uh, an influencer on Instagram the other day. She kept posting about all these like nasal aspirators for babies on Amazon because she had uh-huh. a baby. And I was like, you know, that's actually really great though, because if your nose is clogged, it doesn't have to be related to tongue tie or anything. Maybe you have allergies or you're sick. Well, you're obviously going to breathe through your mouth. And so there's even small things like that. So I'd love to hear for you, like um, your perspective when it comes to a breastfed baby, what are some of the things, like if you could maybe make like a little checklist or something for parents, like what are some of the things that they might want to think about and look at when it comes to their baby? What are some things they could do? Um, and I, I guess I kind of threw one on your checklist for you, which was like, you know, make sure your child's nasal passages are clear. But mm-hmm. um, what are some things that you would suggest that they look at if they're wanting to know, like, are things going in the right direction with my baby's development in terms of the stuff we're talking about? Or should I look into something? Yeah. So when it comes to the babies, I mean, 
Michelle Emanuel, who she is the one who kind of trademarked tummy time method. She speaks a lot about open mouth posture and that starts in infancy. I mean, it can start, you can even see thumb sucking in the womb. So we need to work on developing that musculature. And one thing that some people can do with their babies is just if they see their baby sleeping and they have an open mouth posture, just you know, gently shut their mouth and release it. If it, if it has to drop open again, well, maybe we need to check and make sure the nasal passages are clear too. But just encouraging that closed mouth posture to allow the nasal passages to function as they're supposed to is one good thing. Uh, also, you know, you spoke a, a little bit in your last podcast about positioning for breastfeeding and like we're meant to breastfeed in, in movement at the same time. And I understand we need to sit and relax and let our bodies heal from childbirth, but our babies should be getting stronger and they should be strong enough to be able to support themselves to a certain extent as they naturally would to get the food that they need. So uh, just, I would, I would think that making sure that you're varying your position for breastfeeding and not always constantly doing it one way, um, even making sure, and this is something that maybe you can speak about more, but uh, making sure that both sides are getting utilized. Maybe one doesn't produce as much, but still using that side if you can. Uh, I mean, I would think that from a functional standpoint for the baby, that that in a developmental standpoint, it'd be good to keep things symmetrical and not just unilateral. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and I think to add to that about positioning, you know, that it is important for it to be varied. Like one, once you've got one down, you're like, this works. Like now we can venture out and try some other ones. Um, but when I see moms who let's say they're like, well, the baby only latches on the right breast in the football hold, but I can do cradle hold on the left breast. Well, that means your baby is always laying on the same side of their body. So they're basically mm -hmm. always latching the same. And now we're reinforcing that asymmetry. So maybe they're feeding off both breasts, but they're, but they're, they're asymmetrical in terms of their like function while they're feeding. And you mentioned tummy time, which is so great because that's a great way to improve function, not just developmentally for milestones for your baby. Some people think about it, you know, oh yeah, to get them to roll over and sit up. Well, yeah, but also it has a lot to do with breastfeeding because breastfeeding is not just postural for the mom who's latching the baby, but it also is for the baby. So you're talking about the posture of the baby, which is again, so important, that movement, um, you know, babies stuck in car seats all the time. I'm sure you could agree. They're not really breathing optimally mm -hmm. and it's, they have to be in there, right? Like we don't want anything bad to happen to your baby in the car. So we're not saying don't put your baby in a car seat because they can't yeah. breathe well, but we're saying it's just for the car. They need to be out and be doing different things with their bodies when they're not in that position. And I have to say there is so much that I don't want to say I would do differently with my son, but I would have thought twice, like bringing the car seat in and setting it on the ground because he's sleeping. And, and yes, we can do that at times, but there were times that I just did it out of convenience. I just didn't want to wake him up because there were other things I wanted to do. And looking back, I wish that maybe I had repositioned him into his crib so that he could lay flat and, and things like that. And even down to the things that I fed him or fed myself and all of that. But I mean, and you were asking about things looking for, for breastfed babies and, and could there be concerns? Well, Yes, like you were talking about the congestion in the nasal passages, uh, clicking, falling off the breast, falling asleep at the breast, all of those things, reflux, 
um, really, really long feed times, like they're not accomplishing their goal. And so then they're hungry again really quickly. But then in children too, I mean, I think it's important for parents to just pop in and, and look at how their child is sleeping. Also look for that open mouth posture and see if their covers are thrown all over the bed. And I have kids tell me all the time, oh yeah, I kick my covers all over the place. And then when we start to put the pieces together, mom will recognize that, you know, child A has a tongue tie, uh, child B doesn't have as much of a tongue tie, but has a airway restriction. And then also that she's got TMJ pain and all of this stuff is so interconnected because there is a genetic component that comes into it too. Yeah. And, and I love that. It reminds me of, um, (laughs) my appointment yesterday again, but, uh, you know, I have the mom and the dad there and the newborn and, uh, the mom's mom is there. She, she was in town visiting to help the family out, which is always wonderful. Right. I always love like, let's bring the extended family in those people who are going to be at home supporting you when I'm not there. And the poor mom, she was like, Oh my gosh. She's like, I just feel so bad. She was talking about her other daughter who is, I think she's like 18 or 19, but she's going through like, you know, I think palate expansion, a bunch of stuff right now. And she was thinking about all these problems that she experienced with her as a child. And she started breaking down in tears and she's like, I feel so bad. This is the answer. This is what was going on. And I never knew. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. First of all, you didn't know, like I'm, you know, but she just felt so emotional because it's emotional time and everything with this new baby. And I'm like, but now, you know, and now you can help her and she's still young. So like, you know, we've got some time here, right? Like it's, it's never, you know, and, and I guess that leads me to my final question for you, which is because you do work with all ages, is it too late? You know, is, is there a time when, you know, someone's like, oh gosh, yeah, I totally have these issues, but you know what? I'm already 55. Like there's probably nothing they can do now. Is there a timeline? Like it's just too late for you or can we always treat these things? No, I have my 45 year old husband in treatment And because when we look at the genetics, I mean, I had my baby and then we had his father. And when we tested him, he's 6'2 and slender and fit and healthy. But when we start to break down the physical attributes of his face and then also his signs and symptoms, we couldn't ignore the fact that he has severe sleep apnea. And so, no, it's not too late. And I think that's one of the exciting things about being a practitioner in this time is we do have options for patients of all ages, whether it be uh, therapy to strengthen the oral musculature alone, or whether it be that and a tongue release and an appliance or one of those other things. It, it, there are so many options and not everything is specific for one person. It's not like a medication it really requires an evaluation by a provider who recognizes these things. And because we're all, we all grow differently and we all look different. And that means our structural uh, components are different too. So I do not think it's too late to get help. And, And you did talk about that in one of your podcasts, like, is it too late? And you talked about the 16th month olds who after not breastfeeding at all was able to go back to breastfeeding at, full time after two weeks. And the body is resilient and it it knows what it needs to do. Sometimes it just needs help. And 
it, it looks different for everybody, but I, I do think it's a really exciting time to be a provider as, as medicine's changing and people are looking for ways that they can help heal themselves in a less conventional, less interventional way. I love that. And thank you so much for sharing that perspective because I, I do find that this is an important question. You know, um, while the focus of the talk is, uh, your podcast is breastfeeding, um, I, whenever I work with families, inevitably the parents are like, well, maybe there's something going on with me or my older child or, you know, X, Y, Z. And that is one of the questions where they kind of go, oh, well, you know, my kid already had braces, so there's nothing we can do now. And, you know, it turns out there actually is a lot and it's an ever evolving sort of field. And it's uh, really a great message that you, that you had there. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I wanted to just ask you a question that I love to ask anybody I interview, which is, you kind of maybe said it already, but if there was something that, you know, you could go back and tell yourself or maybe something future forward, like you're going to have this new baby uh, very soon. So is there some advice that you would give yourself uh, going forward or in the past or just a message that, you know, for a mom who's listening to this that you'd really like for her to hear and take home? Well, that's an interesting question. I like to think that I'm a fairly relaxed mother. I have a fairly relaxed child and a fairly relaxed husband. And that's I'm a good thing to movement. And I I wish that I had just taken more time to just spend with my baby as a baby and enjoy him as he was and still is. Then it's it's still hard. I mean, we as moms, I think are we maybe aren't expected to, but we feel like we're expected to do so much. And I remember my doulas, I had two doulas. I was lucky to have two because one had to leave mid-birth and they're both fantastic. But I remember them coming over five days after my birth and I was holding my baby, making them each a latte and running around the home. And it it was like, why did I need to do that? Why don't I just sit down and enjoy the space that I have with my baby for the time that I have? because they're only little ones. Mm, That is so perfect. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Liz did tell me that she's like a former marathon runner. So I feel like that might be just part of your personality a bit. And I know there's a bunch of moms out there like that too, but yeah, you know, uh, I think about that too. Very similar. After I had my first, I felt like I needed to entertain all the visitors that came over. And with my second, I was like, first of all, I don't really want visitors. Like leave your food on the door and ring the doorbell. Text me when it's there. I'll go get it. But like, Mm -hmm. just, I didn't do that. And it was so much more relaxing and I just had the best postpartum because I wasn't, you're already trying to please the baby and take care of that to please everyone else. I don't know sometimes if we have the bandwidth for that. So thank you so much for sharing. Oh, this was so great. I'm so excited uh, for all of your future episodes and I can't wait to hear who you bring on next. It sounds like you've just got a wide array of guests and I learned something new from every single one. So I already shared one of your uh, podcasts earlier with a friend about exercise and movement and getting your body back and I mean, all of those things hit me really hard. It's like, I just needed to like give myself a break. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I absolutely appreciate you and thank you all for listening. 
I don't know about you, but I just learned so much and I nerd out on this kind of stuff, as I said in the episode, but Dr. Liz had some amazing things to share with all of you and I just love her whole body approach. Uh, As we keep saying on these episodes, nothing happens in a vacuum and, you know, it's important to really examine what's affecting our health. It might be something that we just didn't take into account quite yet. So if you found this episode helpful, I'd love for you to hop on over to Instagram. I'll link up uh, Dr. Liz Turner's profile there where you can connect with her. I know she would love to hear from you. So if you found this information helpful, feel free to share a little screenshot of this episode and tag her in your stories or a post or send her a DM. I know that she loves getting feedback about the people that she's able to reach. And if you're in Denver and you might have some issues, absolutely go seek her out. I think she is just incredible. And I love that we have providers like her available. So thank you so much for listening. I will catch you on the next episode. Did you know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras and you can get started right now.